0: Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive, and here's your host, Bruce Nolan.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back. The biggest game of the year is upon us. The Buffalo Bills will play against the New England Patriots again this upcoming Sunday in what is being tabbed as the biggest game of the year. And I think it's interesting because what you have happened is that when you don't perform the way that you want to perform in the biggest game of the year, it creates further biggest games of the year. So if the Buffalo Bills would have beaten the New England Patriots, this game wouldn't be as big. If the Buffalo Bills would have beaten the Tennessee Titans earlier in the year, this would not be as big of a game. But it's almost like, Past failures to get the job done create future opportunities for things like the biggest game of the year. And I just think that's funny. But we have a game to talk about that is not Buffalo Bills, New England Patriots. It's Buffalo Bills, Carolina Panthers. And what we learned after missing two in a row, where we as a fan base would have preferred the team win, and then picking up a W versus the team that you should have picked up a W against, is that the coaching staff of this team that was criticized by the media, by me, by fan bases, over the last couple of weeks, showed some tendencies against the Carolina Panthers that run counter to what you had previously seen. And I think that that's encouraging because what it shows you is it shows you adaptability. And that's what you want from your coaching staff. You want a coaching staff that has a plan, but is willing to move off of it if it's not working. I'll give you a great example. Devin Singletary got 95.7% of the Buffalo Bills rushes from a running back position against the Carolina Panthers. It isn't just a season high for him but it's the season high for any Buffalo running back. That's a lot different than what we historically have said about Sean McDermott. Earlier this offseason, I did an article about whether or not there was going to be a bell cow running back in Buffalo this year based on the things that Sean McDermott has said, based on their previous activity, based on the things that Sean McDermott's GM has said, based on what the GM has had his mentors say. All of this stuff together came to lead me to the conclusion that Buffalo Bills were not going to have a bell cow running back. Sean McDermott flat out has said it's not good for one running back to carry the load. Well, one running back carried the load against the Carolina Panthers. They weren't getting the consistency they wanted out of the running game and they thought one of the potential solutions to this Was to give the overwhelming majority of the carries to one running back. And that's what they did. Which not just goes against what he said. It goes against all the actions he has displayed since he has been the head coach of the Buffalo Bills. If that's not adaptability, I don't know what is. How about running on first and second down? You know how much I dislike running on second and long. But pass protection was garbage. Spencer Brown at left tackle was really, really not good. They knew this. So you gotta do what you gotta do. Historically, I have openly said that pass first will always be my preference unless there are extenuating circumstances. Because those things happen. You can't just say, well, we're a pass first team when there's you know 60 mile an hour wins. And you can't throw the ball. Now, if you try to throw the ball and you end up being successful and turns out you can throw in those wins, then sure, by all means, let's go. Let's do it. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Once the team finds out that Josh Allen can throw in those wins, then let's go. Let's do it. But if there are extenuating circumstances, I understand why you'd be a little bit more. I don't even use the word balanced, but run a little bit more. One of those extenuating circumstances is weather. The other extenuating circumstance is my line is garbage. I have a player I would vastly prefer to not be playing at left tackle, playing at left tackle. So his strength is run blocking. We're going to run a little bit more. So what I saw from Brian Dable and Sean McDermott, specifically when it comes to offense, is a difference between the way that they have historically acted, the things they have historically said, And their actions on Sunday. And I think that's a good thing. You might think that makes them inconsistent or hypocrites or wishy-washy. No, it makes them adaptable. When there is additional data, additional actions must be required. And so for me, I look at that as a positive. Speaking of Devin Singletary, he was perfectly fine. He is clearly, in my mind at this point, the best all-around back On the team. I made an argument a couple months ago that Zach Moss should be the first man up and should be given an opportunity to run the ball against good rush looks, the way that Devin Singletary has historically been allowed to run the ball against good rushing looks. Well, he got his chance, it didn't work out. I was wrong. Devin Singletary is not as good of a pass protector as Zach Moss. And now that we've seen Zach Moss in a little bit better situations a couple weeks ago, and he didn't quite deliver the way we wanted to deliver. If you want to continue to give Devin Singletary the lion's share of the running back touches, I'm fine with that. I'm completely fine with taking my L when it comes to Zach Moss. That does not mean that Devin Singletary is an ideal running back in all circumstances because The offensive line still needs upgraded. So if you're looking at upgrading the offense this offseason, I'm completely fine with an addition to the running back room. Now, we're going to have some discussions, I'm sure, this offseason about the method by which you can upgrade the running back room, whether that's a free agent signing, high draft pick, things like that. And I'm sure that we will probably have some robust dialogue because just so you know, I'm not going to be in favor of a first-round running back because I'm never in favor of a first-round running back. Because the data is always the same. Eventually, could there be different data that would allow me to change my mind the way Sean McDermott and Brian Dable did? Yes. That could absolutely happen. Nothing is set in stone. It's just based on the information you have available at the time. But for now, Devin Singletary, lion's share of the running back touches, completely fine. As mentioned before, Spencer Brown was not good at left tackle. And here's something I think we need to talk about. Spencer Brown has not been good this year. He's had moments of promise this year, but he has not been good. Under no circumstances should we look at Spencer Brown's play as a rookie and say he's been good. He's had flashes of brilliance because he's a freak athlete, and that's what freak athletes can give you. But he's played like a raw rookie. And overall, his quality of play has not been high. His promise is still high. I'm still encouraged. I'm still saying, hey, let's roll him out at right tackle and let him develop. But he has not been good. I bring that up specifically to say that if there were people out there who were trying to run Deion Dawkins out of town earlier this year, now you've had an opportunity to see what below average to not good left tackle play actually looks like. Well, Bruce, you're not being fair. You're comparing Deion Dawkins to Spencer Brown. One of them is a fifth-year player. The other one's a person who's only started a couple games. I'm not comparing the two of them. I'm comparing benchmarks. If you thought Deion Dawkins was not a good tackle, no, no, that's what not a good tackle looks like. Now you have context. That's what not a good tackle looks like. We have done this thing this year where we have had lowlights that have stuck out in our mind. The Tennessee game, the Pittsburgh game, the Jacksonville game that have stuck out in our minds when mind you overall, the Tennessee game was pretty good for Deion Dawkins, but he got blown up on the last play and that's all anyone remembers. So you've had two games and one play that stick out in our mind as being not good for Deion Dawkins and no matter what he does for the rest of the year, it doesn't matter. The jury is out. The verdict has been decided. He's not any good. You don't even care what you see. You don't care what you see on film. You don't care what the metrics tell you. You don't care how it compares to any of his previous years. All you know is you saw those things, they're embedded in your head, and you can't get it out now. You have seen what you need to see. And that's what we do. We focus way too much on highlights when it comes to Spencer Brown, and we focus way too much on lowlights when it comes to Deion Dawkins. But they're not even in the same planet as far as quality of play right now. Deion Dawkins remains an above average left tackle, although he had some low lights. Spencer Brown remains a markedly below average tackle, although he had some highlights. But we can't live in the middle. We're not comfortable living in the middle. Everyone is either perfect or garbage. Dawkins is a victim of the exact same phenomenon as Brian Dable. The idea that someone who is not perfect is therefore easily replaceable. I criticized Brian Dable on this podcast not too long ago. Also, Sean McDermott for some of the play calling stuff. Some of the stuff I didn't like. They're not perfect. Sean McDermott's not perfect. But there should be a significant gap between they're not perfect and we should fire them. Huge gap exists there. But for a lot of people, that gap is about the width of their patience online. That's how wide that gap is. If they're not perfect, we fire them. But other people, if they're not perfect, we say you can't hold them that standard. If Josh Allen makes a bad pass and someone says, oh man, that was a bad pass from Josh Allen. Well, I don't know anyone who's held to the standard of Josh Allen. You can't expect him to be perfect. We hold people to completely different standards. I don't think Sean McDermott is the best head coach in the league. I don't think he needs to be to be worthy of being the Bills head coach. I don't think Brian Dable is the best offensive play caller in the league. I don't think he needs to be to be worthy to be the Buffalo Bills offensive play caller. Josh Allen is not the best quarterback in the league. I don't think he needs to be to be worthy of being the Buffalo Bills starting quarterback. Deion Dawkins is not the best left tackle in the league. I don't think he needs to be to be worthy of being the Bills left tackle because there can only be one of those things. Aaron Rodgers is again playing out of his mind this year. There's a reasonable chance he wins the MVP back to back. If your standards are not the best, therefore sucks, not perfect, therefore sucks, I don't know what to tell you. I saw somebody on the internet who called Deion Dawkins a slob I thought to myself, I'd love to see you against Deion Dawkins in a three-cone drill. Well, Bruce, I'm not a professional athlete. Okay, well, he's really good compared to other athletes at a three-cone drill. Just in case you were wondering, the three-cone drill for Deion Dawkins was 7.3. 7.3. That's really, really good. But he had a low light, so we're going to call him names on the internet. I I just can't. I just can't get with it. I can't do it. Deion Dawkins is an above-average left tackle, and he's being paid commensurate with being an above-average left tackle. He's the 12th highest paid left tackle in football. That's completely reasonable. So his play is reasonable based on past history. His play is reasonable based on the way he's being paid, What is the deal? We just saw this thing at some point that made us upset and it stuck in our brain. And now for the rest of the year, we're going to hate on Deion Dawkins. It's insane. And nobody's saying he's perfect, but he doesn't have to be to be worth continued employment in his position by the Buffalo Bills. So you can be critical of his play on a snap or in a game. And not have that bleed into, we should cut him. Those are two different things. We can't live in that middle space. We we just can't do it. With Sean McDermott, we can't do it. He's flawed. Yes, all coaches are flawed. Watch other games, follow other beat reporters. All coaches are flawed. They all make in-game decisions that my fans don't like. Great example of a Sean McDermott decision I don't like a Bobby Johnson decision that I don't like. I would have very preferred less movement on the offensive line. I don't like moving three positions when one is out. I don't think it's good for the offensive line. But at this point, the staff has proven that that's what they will do. They will try and get the best perceived five on there. And they don't care as much about number of simultaneous offensive line moves. As they do about getting the best perceived five on the field. I would personally like as little disruption as possible. But that's not how they feel. So for them, Cody Ford in, Daryl Williams to right tackle, Spencer Brown to left tackle. They'll make three moves to replace one person. At this point, we should no longer be surprised. As long as Sean McDermott is the coach and Bobby Johnson is the offensive line coach, This is what we're going to get. I don't like that. I don't think it's the best way to go about doing it. But that's what they're going to do. So now I have a decision to make. Is that thing by itself enough for me to say, fired Sean McDermott? No, of course not. It's a decision that he makes consistently based on a belief he has that I disagree with. Is that enough to fire him? No, of course it's not enough to fire him. But... If I don't know any other coaches, if I don't know any other situations, then I might think that's an egregious thing because I have no frame of reference. So we should acquire frame of references. That will help us find the middle ground. That's the last thing on this point before we go to break. It will help us find the middle ground if we gain perspective. And the way we gain perspective is to watch teams who aren't us. It's to follow beat reporters that aren't our beat reporters. I've mentioned this a million times. It's the best way to get perspective on the league and where your team falls within it. How your team is viewed by other people who aren't you. We get so insulated that we lose perspective. And when we lose perspective, we don't find the middle ground. So everything becomes either he's perfect and we can't criticize him at all, or I criticize him and now I want to fire him. The title of this podcast is I Have the Middle Ground. Of course, it's a play on Star Wars because any opportunity to get it's just an absolutely horrendous pun in there. I have to do it. But if you find most of your opinions fall on the he's perfect or we should fire him standpoint, then your middle ground probably isn't big enough. And if your middle ground isn't big enough, you probably don't have the perspective that you need. We're going to take a quick break. Stick with me. We'll be right back.
0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We talked about middle grounds. We talked about Singletary. We talked about evolution and adaptability. There's some other things I want to talk about when it comes to Bills-Panthers and some of the trends that we're seeing from this Buffalo Bills team. I wrote an article for buffalorumblings.com on Harrison Phillips because I think there's something here we need to discuss. Going into this year, one of the things that I said was that we were hopeful to get Star Latula back so that it would be possible to have one reasonable, one-tech defensive tackle on the team. That's what I wanted. One reasonable defensive tackle on the team that was a one-tech. And a lot of people were like, well, what about Harrison Phillips? And my answer was, I would not classify him as a reasonable, starting, caliber, one-tech it He's been hurt too much. And when he did play, I don't think he was very good in 2020. He was starting to turn around in 2019. But then the Bengals game happened. He got hurt. And I thought at the time that he was starting to maybe eat into Starla Tulli's snaps a little bit. Well, here we are. Two and a half years later. And Harrison Phillips started over Starla Tulli the last time we saw him on the field. And I feel like no one's talking about it but I kind of feel like we should. So we've got this player who was a former third-round pick out of Stanford, famously had his selection announced by Pancho Bia, and now he's starting over Starla Tule, And no one's talking about it. He's going to be an unrestricted free agent at the end of his rookie deal at the end of this year, and the Buffalo Bills are notoriously short on defensive tackles next year. Ed Oliver, Starla Tule. That's it. Those are your only defensive tackles. Butler, Zimmer, Phillips, all scheduled to be free agents. So you need bodies. So unless you want to be drafting a lot of defensive tackles, picking up a lot of UDFAs, you're going to have to worry about signing somebody. What about him? Well, the natural extension there, after I say, what about Harrison Phillips? You'll say, okay, well, how much? Because that was the main point of most of the free agency discussions that have happened on this podcast and around the content creation universe when it comes to pending free agents. Well, how much? That was a big stickler when I got to the Jordan Phillips resigning. It was not that I thought Jordan Phillips was a bad player. It's that I thought someone was going to offer him $10 million a year. And I didn't think he was going to be worth that. Well, guess what? Somebody offered him $10 million a year. Thus far, he hasn't been worth that. But let's look at some defensive tackle signings that I think might line up with what Harrison Phillips might get. So Adam Butler signed a two-year, $7.5 million contract at age 26 with the Dolphins after his four-year rookie deal expired with the Patriots. As a reminder here, Harrison Phillips is going to be 26 when the league year starts. So we're going around that age. Now, Adam Butler got more pass rush productivity than Phillips which is probably what netted him a more significant pay. But he wasn't very good against the run. Raheem Nunez-Roches was a two-year, $5 million contract at age 27. And he re-signed with the Buccaneers at that point. And he's been fine. Completely reasonable. He's been a rotational defensive lineman. He'll probably be that way for the rest of his career. He's not someone I would consider to be a preferred starter. Chris Wormley signed a two-year, four and a half million dollar contract at age 27 to re-sign with the Steelers after his first year in Pittsburgh. Now he came to them from Baltimore, the division rival, and he has been a solid defender. I mean, he's been good against the run. He's been good against the pass. And I think this is a good target when it comes to Harrison Phillips. I think Wormley has been better, but he also didn't get hurt until his first year in Pittsburgh. This year, he's in the middle of a breakout season. He's got career highs in sacks and pressures because he's been given a career high in snaps. So Harrison Phillips, as we mentioned, is going to be 26. So if the Bills want to re-sign him, I'm thinking like two years, four to five million dollars. Would that be reasonable? I think so. I think it gives you an opportunity to potentially even move on from star if you really want to. Now, I probably wouldn't at this point because I'm not interested in creating an additional hole where there doesn't need to be. But if Harrison Phillips continues to incline and mind you, he's doing it with a torn PCL. So that will probably deflate the value a little bit as well. The past injury concerns when it comes to his knees. But I think you get a two year $4 million contract, two year, four and a half million dollar contract two-year, four point $4.75 million contract. I think it's reasonable based on the market and I'll level with you. I'd probably do it. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Bruce, one of the items on the book of Bruce is don't re-sign meh players. And you use that as an argument against John Feliciano. Ready for this? Harrison Phillips has been better in the last couple of games than John Feliciano was in 2020, in my opinion. He's played pretty well. I went back and watched him for the purposes of this pod. He's played pretty well the last couple of games go back and watch Harrison Phillips I think he's playing really well. this is not a me player right now this is a okay yeah that's a that's a good solid reasonable player and I'd be completely okay with that resigning and it would also stave off some of the potential body issues from a number standpoint that you might run into. you might be forced or pressured to spend a draft pick on a tackle you really didn't want to because you need the numbers. And we all know Brandon Bean likes to fill the numbers issue before the draft so he doesn't get pressured to have to take a position that is specifically something he would be taking for need. So Harrison Phillips is a topic that I think is going to come up a lot, and I think we should probably get ahead of it. Let's talk Marquez Stevenson. He looks pretty comfortable as a returner. I got to be honest. Leave him there. Let Isaiah McKenzie be more involved in the offense, which is going to be a necessity because of Cole Beasley. But I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that I think we learned something about this staff. They don't want the guy who's the returner to be heavily involved in the offense. We thought that maybe it was just because Andre Roberts isn't a good offensive player. That's what we thought when Andre Roberts was the primary returner. But then Isaiah McKenzie became the primary returner and his role on offense went way down. I think they just don't want someone to do both. So Stevenson actually frees up McKenzie to be more involved with the jet sweep motion on offense and the gadget plays on offense, which I think is good. I don't think it's McKenzie being replaced by Stevenson. I think it's McKenzie being facilitated by Stevenson when it comes to offense. This off season, we are going to have to have a discussion about return of investments in the defensive line because the bills have put cash and draft picks. And so far, They haven't seen it in regards to pass rush productivity from those picks. That's important. It's very important we specify that. I don't know if you know this or not, but Gregory Rousseau is right now an extremely good edge run defender. Really good. But the results haven't been there for A.J. Epinesa, Boogie Basham, Gregory Rousseau, when it comes to pass rushing. And that's something we're going to have to talk about. But I want to get ahead of the narrative now. Because when we talk about that, when we talk about the ROI, we need to specifically make it about pass rush. Because Gregory Rousseau is a really good run defender literally right now. Right now. He's not developing into a good run defender. He is a good run defender on the edge right now. So this is me making an addendum. To a narrative that doesn't even really exist quite yet. It will be a very significant talking point in the offseason. And that is the return on investment that you're getting from the defensive line. It's specifically, the criticism specifically, needs to be about pass rushing. Plurality pie for the Buffalo Bills-Carolina Panthers game. Brian Dable, 17%. Yeah, I think he called a pretty good game. When you have to play with really bad protection, and you get 31 points against the top five defense, that's a good play calling game. I think the adjustment to use McKenzie more, I think giving Singletary the bulk of the carries, I think all this stuff is good when you know you have an an offensive line that's going to be a little bit depleted. Josh Allen, 16%, perfectly fine. Perfectly reasonable game for Josh Allen. Not the best, not the worst. He was fine. Dawson Knox, 15%. The stat line's not going to be super impressive. But Dawson Knox came up with some good plays at big times. Devin Singletary, 14%. He was fine. But if I can just get fine, if I can get enough carries from my running back room where it's not disastrous and it's fine, I'm good with that. FA Obata, 12%. There's someone who's given a little bit of ROI fun facts F.A. Obata is seventh in the NFL in pressures per pass rush snap amongst interior defensive line players who have a hundred or more pass rush snaps he's also tied for the team lead with sacks despite playing the ninth most pass rush snaps on the team I think he's outplayed AJ Epinesa I don't think that's a hot take as a pass rusher specifically but also in general I think he's outplayed AJ Epinesa Also, he's on a one-year deal. I would very much like to see more of him to know if the Bills should re-sign him this offseason because I've always been intrigued. But because of the rotation, you haven't got a chance to see him as much as you would like. But at this point in the season, you're looking for sparks where you can get them. And I think you've gotten a little bit from F.A. Obata. I understand it was against the Carolina Panthers, but the ability to beat a player from the interior... And then come around later that game and beat a player off the edge. I think that's pretty good. And given the fact that the Bills are looking for juice and a spark from their down defensive lineman, I think it might be time for F.A. Obata to play a little bit more snaps. Other 12%. So Brian Dable, 17. Josh Allen, 16. Dawson Knox, 15. Devin Singletary, 14. F.A. Obata, 12. Other 26. Plurality pie. We've got a couple emails to get to. Andy says, in 2022, assuming the Bills don't trade away any of their draft picks, they will draft the following positions in this exact order. Interior offensive line, cornerback, defensive tackle, interior offensive line again, tight end, cornerback, wide receiver, linebacker, running back. Hashtag parlay all day. Andy, I got to tell you, man, that's ballsy. That's like a, Multi, multi, multi-pick parlay. So I'll, I'll go with the highest of highly improbables when it comes to that. But, I mean, I'm never going to complain about two corners in a draft. You know that. I'll never complain. But they won't do it. I mean, come on. They're going to give me a cornerback high. They love to torture me. They love it. They, they think it's hilarious that Bruce squirms and cries out in the darkness when the Bills don't draft any cornerbacks. Frederick says, Bruce, thanks for all the hard work and effort you put in every week to entertain us Bills fans and shout out to your wife. She must be incredibly patient. (laughs) What does that mean, Frederick? That was the best backhanded compliment I've ever gotten in my entire life. Shout out to my wife. Yes, she is incredibly patient. She is a goddess walking amongst mere mortals. So you're not wrong. His cold take is this. The biggest pieces of the plurality pie for 2021 Colts and Pats game go to Brandon Bean. In focusing on building a roster that can defeat the Chiefs, he forgot you have to win the division first. The team will have to play in some tough fall and winter conditions in New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. Unfortunately, the decisions in the last couple of off seasons have come back to bite us. And I don't think they can do anything about it this offseason with limited cap space and the fact that interior offensive line rookies take time to develop. Other quick observations, 2021 Bills are literally the fifth-grader bully who beat up all the small kids but start crying when challenged by somebody their size. Number two, I cannot wrap my head around the personnel decisions Monday night keeping McKenzie inactive. It's okay if you don't trust him with returning the football, but he brings speed to a slow backfield. I'm also surprised they didn't utilize Gilliam Moore as an additional blocker. Number three, Bill Belichick's game plan was not genius, but he utilized his team strength and was able to limit his weak-armed quarterback's weaknesses. Four, McDermott's decision to go for an extra point when Pat's just completed a two-point conversion in a game you know will be close. Random food thought, best cold soup is pea soup. I'll level with you. I haven't had cold soup in so long. I'm inclined to agree with you. I think it's soup that's probably best cold, which is very, very rare. But I haven't had pea soup in a really long time, so I'll get back to you on that. I understand this argument that the Buffalo Bills were built to beat the Chiefs. And because of that, they weren't able to be built to beat anybody else. But I'm not entirely sure that that's necessarily true. I think that was a big part of the fan narrative. But the entire offseason, all that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott talked about was winning the division. Like, that was the whole thing. I don't know if they necessarily built the team to beat the Chiefs as much as We talked about them building a team to be the Chiefs this offseason. I think Sean McDermott looked at 2020 and said that pass rush is not good enough. And we've got two pieces that are a little older, and Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison, and we need to reinforce. And so they did. I don't necessarily know if that was necessarily a Chiefs thing, as it was a, we're still not where we want to be. If we suffer through a retool on the defensive line, this upcoming offseason. It'll be the third season in a row when they did that. They're just going to keep working on that until they get it right. So I don't know if they necessarily did that. Now we talked about before that perhaps Sean McDermott took away the wrong lessons, but that's not really a Brandon Bean thing from a team building standpoint. So I get all this, but I'm not sure that they built the team to beat the chiefs. That was not part of their rhetoric at all. And, The Buffalo Bills had a very similar style offseason in 2019 going into the 2020 season where they tried to retool the defensive line. And at that point, the narrative wasn't, you got to beat the Chiefs. Evans says, okay, here's the deal. Monday Night Football on 40 Mile an Hour wins, Infinity Wars. We were heartbroken. Our heroes have been turned to dust. This game, end game. Brian Dable, who is Dr. Strange, by the way, has built a game plan to bring back Everyone. Josh completes passes to 11 different receivers. Ed Oliver goes Hulk and smashes through the offensive line of New England. Once again, Diggs, who is Captain Marvel, is overpowered and scores two touchdowns. Hopefully, McDermott doesn't die after putting on the Infinity Gauntlet. 31-10 Buffalo. Love it. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We did the whole thing. We're all caught up. Thank you for being a part of this. I'm glad we got out on time today and I didn't run over. But if you're upset at me, I'm sorry. That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Run.